You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 6th of March 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliette Foster and on today's show, Venezuela's President Nicolas Maduro vows to defeat a crazed minority that wants him out of power as the United States considers imposing new sanctions on his government. Could a centre-right bloc in the European Parliament suspend or boot out the party of Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban over his anti-migration campaign? My guests, Oscar Gabriela Riviera and Joy Laduca, will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Dress to Impress or Not? US banking giant Goldman Sachs relaxes its staff dress code. Could other companies soon follow suit? All that plus... Why Austrian travellers are ditching cut-price no-frills carriers for the genteel stately joy of the train. That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliette Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Oscar Guardiola Riviera, who's a reader in law at Birkbeck, University of London, and Joy Lodico. She's a columnist at the London Evening Standard. So welcome both of you to the programme. And let's start with Venezuela's President Nicolas Maduro, because he has vowed to defeat what he's called a crazed minority that wants to force him from power. He's also called on his supporters to hold demonstrations on Saturday to coincide with anti-government protests. It marks a further step in what has the potential to spiral into a bloody showdown between the president and the opposition leader, Juan Guaido, who's recognised by more than 50 countries as Venezuela's interim leader. Meanwhile, the United States has threatened to impose fresh sanctions on Mr Maduro's government. So, Oscar, it does look as if Juan Guaido has wrong-footed Nicolas Maduro by coming back to Venezuela because he was told if you leave the country, you're breaking a travel ban. So he's basically said, OK, fine, here I am. So was Maduro banking on him not coming back? Uh, probably yes, because actually uh, the reason why Maduro has gone on the offensive is because the uh, uh, stunt that we saw on the 23rd of February, you know, the concert uh, at the border between Cucuta and Táchira and the attempt to provoke a heavier handed response uh, from uh, uh, the Venezuelan army that would perhaps... Uh, be taken as a moral justification for some kind of humanitarian intervention actually failed. And it failed abysmally. Uh, nothing, uh, nothing of the sort that was uh, supposed to happen happened. Uh, and in fact, the very day after that, Vice, U.S. Vice President Mike Pence was in Bogota demanding uh, from Ivan Duque, the Colombian president, and Jair Bolsonaro, the Brazilian president, that they choose in between three of uh, 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 war, including uh, scenarios for the overthrow of Maduro. And the response he got was not the one that uh, uh, both him and Guaido expected. Both Brazil and Colombia made it very clear that they were not going to go for a, some kind of uh, mm. military intervention. And that clearly wrong-footed the strategy 
of uh, the opposition, at least, uh, you know, the far right wing sector of the opposition that Guaido does represent. Let us not confuse him with uh, the entire opposition against Maduro. There are other voices there which are going for different tactics and proposing uh, constitutional measures, being equally critical of Maduro. So what this meant was uh, uh, that Plan A, which was trying to divide the Venezuelan army, had not worked, at least not so far. And Plan B, which, which was going for some kind of humanitarian intervention, didn't work either. So now he has gone uh, all the way to the, Venezu to the Brazilian border, went back into Venezuela, and what he's now obliged to do is to try to uh, provoke some kind of, uh, you know, fight for the streets, which is why we have uh, equal calls for mm. uh, street protests uh, from both sides. And Joy, let's pick up on this point, because it does appear that, yes, we, we've had these moments where we've been told in this conflict, this could be D-Day, mm. but the fact that you've got the president actually saying to his supporters, go out there, demonstrate against the, the supporters of Guaido, etc. There is that possibility that this really could be it. This could be a supreme flashpoint, which potentially could threaten uh, Mr. Maduro. Well, it's not quite kind of Lenin coming in on the sealed carriage to take over. I mean, it clearly is. They know he's coming. The resistance is there. I suppose a query from a kind of an outsider, I mean, certainly not as knowledgeable about this as Oscar, is why the army has not, uh, in a sense, risen to defend Maduro. If they are so deeply loyal to him, or indivisible at the moment, one would have thought that they would be arriving in numbers at this point to quell what is rapidly turning into a form of rebellion revolution on the streets, and yet they haven't arrived. Well, the answer is very simple. They know that uh, uh, what they uh, they are expected uh, to uh, go for some kind of heavy-handed response, and this is why they have uh, contained their, their response. Uh, mind you, of course, there are sectors of uh, the Venezuelan army who are uh, uh, not necessarily with Maduro. We have seen some defections, not as many as expected, but it is also the case that uh, the Venezuelan army for all sorts of reasons, some good reasons, some, some others not necessarily uh, uh, so good, uh, are still with him. And that's the very point. Because the Venezuelan army has not been divided, uh, the uh, you know plan A has not mm. worked. Because there are some defections, but we're, we're talking about defections on the edges you as know, opposed 60, to the centre. 60 defectors uh, in the uh, Colombian-Venezuelan uh, border, all of them from lower-ranking uh, uh, sectors of the army. The army is effectively still with Maduro. And uh, that, you know, this is five weeks into uh, this uh, attempted coup, let's call a spade a spade. And uh, uh, that means that uh, all sorts of people, including the Spanish Minister of uh, uh, Foreign Affairs, are beginning to wonder, ooh, did we make a mistake? Is this not going to work? Uh, uh, what do we do now? And this is an interesting point, isn't it, uh, Joy? Because yes, you've had a number of countries which have actually said that uh, the opposition leader is, to all intents and purposes, the president. But at the same time, nobody can really step over that line to, to oust Mr. Maduro. He, he feels pretty strong. Where does this leave the United States? Because Donald Trump has hinted in some way of um, taking further action, although he hasn't been quite specific about what that further action could be beyond sanctions. Well, um, it, it's quite an interesting question. The, I mean, part, some parts of the flows of the caravan coming up to that border wall are themselves coming from Venezuela. Um, there, is a kind of pre there is a kind of pressure to get the country under some sort of control in some sort of order. I think one of the most interesting questions that has come up out of this is... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to get a translation of the name wrong. Guiardo... <laughs> Is that correct? Guaido. We call it Guaido. 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 Um, <laughs> you were close. <laughs> has asked for uh, Citibank to not um, pay back this uh, a, a, a loan, which is essentially mm. gold. 
Now, at that point, you're asking a US bank to intervene in a government uh, loan purchase. Citibank has not replied at this point in time. What does Donald Trump say? You know, they're actually holding Venezuelan assets. And this is sort of far more subtle than sanctions. Uh, it causes a crisis for Citibank because in theory, you're kind of as a lender, you should be... Understanding ne- in the middle. You should, you should A, be neutral and B, honour your contracts. But do you start applying political pressure through financial means if you cannot get to the army to do so? And, that, and that's a good point. Are these the sanctions that Trump is referring to in a rather veiled sort of way? In other words, it's, it's where you've actually used gold to get money. You've leveraged it, you've borrowed it. Can I have my gold back, please? It's like, no, you can't. <laughs> Certainly, but once more, this is a double-edged sword because on the one hand, of course, the Venezuelan government is asking for these reserves, is eating into its reserves because it doesn't have hard currency with which to buy imports, foodstuffs, and so on and so forth, which is why we have shortages in some places in Venezuela and those shortages end up hurting the population. So for Guaido, who is supposed to uh, protect this sector of the population, to go and then ask Citibank, with all the legal complications that may uh, that may have, to, with, to withhold these reserves, the end, the end result will be even further suffering on the Venezuelan people. So this could, uh, again, mm. this could go both ways. But, you see, it's, it, but if we actually broaden the picture beyond Venezuela, it is not an unusual situation because Zimbabwe springs to mind where, again, you had a population that suffered because you had sanctions imposed on the government and yet the, the, the boss, the man at the top of the food chain, doesn't go. It's an internal event which effectively displaces him. And also the money that you do allow to flow in largely will go to an army that you're trying to keep loyal rather more than foodstuffs. Well, so, bo- both things, of course. Yeah. You know, the, one of the ways in which the detail is what matters. Yeah. One of the ways in which uh, uh, Maduro has the government on his side is because, is because the government has the, 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 the army has the contract to distribute these foodstuffs. And, uh, and uh, so in, you have this is quite clever and quite complicated because it means that uh, the army does need to be seen at the very least to be distributing some kind of aid uh, for it to maintain uh, legitimacy vis-a-vis the people, but also to, uh, you know, play its role in this, uh, uh, you know, let's call it what it is, a tragic comedy. It, 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 is, it can become a huge tragedy. Mm. The huge problem with the the current phase of U.S. sanctions is that, as Jeffrey Sachs and uh, uh, Francisco Rodriguez, you know, critics of Maduro have told us, this may end up producing a real famine, a real humanitarian crisis in Venezuela. And that very, very easily could end up strengthening Maduro's uh, hand. Right. So the final question before we move on to our next subject, and either of you can take this. Do you feel, in your opinion, that time has run out for any kind of a constructive deal between Maduro and Guaido? Have we gone past that stage now? What seems to be running out is time for uh, the regime change plan to work. Uh, But there are other actors here. The governments of Uruguay and Mexico have opened up, together with the Vatican, a dialogue channel. I think that uh, that is going to be uh, the way through. And Joy? I'm interested here. The Vatican has become involved. (laughs) (laughs) If you can't do it through politicians, do it through God. (laughs) 
America. <laughs> Anything's possible. OK, moving on now. And the Hungarian Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, is in a dilemma that critics claim is entirely of his own making. Later this month, the European People's Party, a Conservative and Christian Democratic bloc in the EU Parliament, will vote on whether to suspend or remove Mr Orban and his governing Fidesz party from their organisation. The EPP has been annoyed by Mr Orban's anti-migration attacks on the EU Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker. Fidesz says it doesn't want to leave the EPP, although for that to happen, Mr Orban would have to apologise. And as we know, because the song says so, sorry is the hardest word. (laughs) Now, I mean, Joy, look, would Viktor Orban apologise or is that too much of a loss of face for even him to stomach? Oh, it's a huge loss of face. I mean, I think, in a sense, this whole argument is actually rather comic because it's actually a war of billboards. I mean, he puts up a billboard saying, um, you, if you, have to, if you, have, you have the right to know what Brussels is about to do. It's a picture of Soros and Jean-Claude Juncker. It's entirely personal. The EU has just hit back with its own billboard, which is essentially a fact check on all the kind of lies that are being pumped up, uh, uh, pumped out by Fidesz on immigration policy and, and border security. Now, when you're having a public spat on billboards, uh, the idea that one person is just going to bow down and apologise is uh, ridiculous. Orban enjoys kind of needling uh, away at... Uh, at the centre of Brussels. It's part of his shtick. He runs an illiberal democracy. He is having what a number of uh, countries in Europe are having, which is this kind of lurch to the right. And he he is trying mm. to capitalise on... He's riding on, the wave. Yeah, he's cap- trying to capitalise on what he calls a kind of 21st century illiberal democracy, which actually sounds very kind of 19th century to us, which is one man, one woman, Christian values and so forth. And so... Juncker, in a sense, uh, Juncker in Brussels epitomises almost the opposite of that, of progress. And I can't see him being able to climb down from his current position. Mm. And I'm glad you used the idea of it somehow being a childish spat between two grown-ups, because the point which I'm going to put to you, Oscar, is, look, isn't the EPP being a bit thin-skinned about this? Because, as Joyce said... This is just Viktor Orban doing what he does best, which is grandstanding. He's doing a Trump. He's playing to the home crowd. Absolutely. I mean, on the one hand, I'm, I'm of two minds here. On the one hand, I do believe that we must uh, take this, this sort of thing very seriously. Uh, I try to imagine uh, what uh, Urban's apology would look like. Uh, I'm sorry for my anti-Semitism. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, the fact that we're responding to this very serious sort of thing by uh, just you know threatening to uh, expel you from our club is uh, either uh, too late or else too little. Mm. Well, also, I mean, the, the thing is, last summer, uh, when um, uh, there was sort of Im- immigration, you know, the immigration question was very high, Manfred Weber, who's uh, the, essentially the man who's going to kick him out of the EPP or going to direct them to do so, was apologising for him, saying, well, look, there are different values. There's all sorts of relative values across Europe. So the Soros question had already arrived then. It becomes very difficult for Brussels to keep allowing what is blatantly anti-Semitism to, to uh, sort of uh, be alive and thrive in the leadership of one of its parties. Um, and so I think they, they have got to the point where they actually do have to take some form of action, or certainly the mainstream Europe mm. does. Also because this is the point where you can no longer uh, hide uh, behind the idea of uh, relativi- relativism. Yeah. You know, there are various values. Now, this is an absolute matter. You cannot tolerate this. Well, this is, I think, why Macron's speech becomes quite interesting, because he's trying to sit down and begin to say, 
Europe should not have a series of relative values. There are certain things that should always underpin us. One of those is a, a proper democracy with no foreign funding of parties. And I'm not sure where Orban gets his money from, but I'm sure there's a decent check that's coming. It's somewhere, it's somewhere in Europe, we know Ru- that. Well, I think possibly a decent check from Russia, actually, is arriving every so often in the bank account. But also saying, also, in a sense, playing to those countries which are getting very uh, agitated by immigration, that we should have strong borders. Mm. So trying to define a set of values that are not relative across uh, the European Union. But the bottom line is that even if he is kicked out of the EPP, he's not going to be homeless for long because there are other like-minded European leaders who will quite welcome him, quite happily welcome him into their bloc. Well, and elections are coming and we're not certain uh, what the uh, you know future composition of uh, European institutions will be like. And, and uh, uh, there are uh, fears that uh, we may see more of his kind, let's say Vox in Spain and so on and so forth, coming through. Mm. And I mean, in terms of where he could go, um, there's talk about the Europe of Nations and Freedom Group. So this is one which uh, has the likes of Matteo Salvini's League Party and also Marine Le Pen's National Rally. So whilst they're all ideological soulmates on issues like migration, they do kind of differ on other areas. So can you really not, can you see them overcoming that and thinking, well, okay, then, we don't we don't want the dark people in our in our neck of the woods, but we can so as long as we've got that in common, then maybe we can find a way of, of cohabiting. There's a, kind of going to be a cheery drinks group. And the other one, obviously, is the ECR, um, which is um, the European Conservative and Reformist formed by our dear David Cameron, who, who was at the... Another like, tactical error. In 2009, when he was being tricky with Sorry, the... Where tricky, is he? Where? Is it, who's, who's this guy? David Cameron? Who's, 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 I, I, I think he's in a shepherd's hut. Yeah, he's in a shepherd's hut. Right. Locked right. in a shepherd's hut for all, all right. the trouble he's caused. Yes. And that would put Orban in with um, the Law and Justice Party from Poland, which would kind of make a fair amount of sense. I mean, none of them, I think we wouldn't be kind of queuing up to go to any of their drinks parties and they're still relatively niche. Uh, in some ways, it's a good thing because it's, it's kind of cleansing process for the EPP. The EPP can then occupy that centre-right uh, ground. So he's quite... doing them a favour if he just leaves before a vote's taken? Yeah, I think um, I think it's going to be very difficult at these European elections right. to hold your yeah. nose uh, mm. uh, and uh, say they're, they're part of our gang. And if I may, you're absolutely right. I don't want to go to the party because probably the only thing they have in common is we don't want dark people. Yeah. <laughs> right, well, that, that, that also includes me. I won't be going to the party either. No, trust me, they might bar me too. <laughs> <laughs> but then there are suggestions that a number of people have made that perhaps what this is all about really is that Orban dreams of being a much bigger player on the European stage and that what he wants to do ultimately is to reach out to a wide mix of conservatives and eurosceptics across the board who knows maybe perhaps form his own group I mean mm. do you think that that is the the underlying ambition because the the winds seem to favor him at the moment because they're blowing in this populist direction I mean, what is it with these egocentric, white male characters, all of whom have either terrible hair or horrible moustaches and even worse uh, fashion sense that, uh, uh, you know, make them make them part of, a, of the most obnoxious uh, uh, political club? Uh, of course, again, I don't want to trivialize this because this is a very serious challenge to our liberal democracies. We must uh, uh, hold on to those values. We must uh, uh, recover a proper definition of uh, freedom because uh, uh, what we are seeing here is precisely the possibility that, uh, uh, you know, carrying uh, the the flag of uh, discontent and so on and so forth, uh, they might uh, throw us all into the fire. And in other circumstances, we, we might actually ignore the May European elections, but this time they're going to be very closely watched. And of course, the question is, how well 
are people like Viktor Orban and their ilk likely to fare? I mean, can we actually see the EU being upended in some way, shape or form as if it hasn't been upended enough already? Yes, yes, yes and no, because I think what you have to remember about these right wing groups is they don't necessarily see eye to eye. So even what would seem to be natural allies, which is Fidesz and Law and Justice, have big divisions about how they... Uh, uh, view Russia. Um, but you also have to look at, think about Steve Bannon's attempt to create this broader coalition of right-wing parties in Europe. And I mean, they basically all stuck two fingers up, up at him and said, look, I actually don't have anything in common with them. We don't have anything in common with them. So they're as fractured uh, as uh, the rest of us. So you, I think you wouldn't be too worried about trying to lump them together because they won't sit together right, very nicely anyway. The On the other hand, I'm more worried about the kind of effect that these uh, right fringe movements have on uh, other right wings. Let's take a Spain in mm. which uh, the popular party is already promising to take measures against uh, women's rights precisely in order to uh, cater to that sector of the of the electorate. Okay, so something we'll pursue for another time. But you're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, and my guests Oscar Cariola Rivera and Joy Lodico. Now, coming up next, dress to impress or not? Goldman Sachs relaxes the dress code for its staff. Could other companies follow suit? Weighing in at almost 400 pages, the Monocle Guide to Cozy Homes is packed with everything you need to know about making a great place to live. The book is filled with handsome residences and all the contacts you need to make a home that will last a lifetime. And it's a book that celebrates the people who know homes should be able to cope with kids, dogs and a few scuff marks too. It's a book that knows a home is only as good as the community it's in. And it's a book that takes you through the front doors of everything from mountain hideaways to modernist towers. So be cosy and buy your copy today at monocle.com. Now still with me are Oscar Guardiola Rivera and Joy Lodico. It looks as if the designer power suit, the uniform of high-flying city workers, might be hovering on the edge of extinction after Goldman Sachs became the latest US investment bank to relax its staff dress code. Goldman's is now encouraging its workers to dress casually when they come to the office, although they will be expected to dress formally for some meetings. Meanwhile, Virgin Atlantic's female cabin crew are no longer required to wear makeup on duty. Goody! And in another concession to the 21st century, they will automatically be offered trousers on joining the company rather than only when requested. Doesn't that make us all very happy? But look, most people do dress very casually for work, so I guess it was only a matter of time before financial sac- the financial sector will catch up with the rest of humanity. We're all very casually dressed. Um, <laughs> I have to, at this point, uh, say that Oscar is wearing um, the most extraordinary outfit, uh, which I think only an academic could get away with. Uh, there is a diagonally striped, striped black, red and white tie, a vertically striped matching black, red and white shirt, and then a kind of lovely aubergine cardigan to sort of tie mm. the whole ensemble together. I thought it was Which a twin set, actually. Yeah, oh, it's punk. It's got some <laughs> oh, safety pins in it. Oh, right. I thought so, it was a twin set. So, in fact, she looks incredibly smart, but also incredibly casual and very kind of lounge at the same time. Uh, now, thanks, would, would Goldman Sachs, would you go to a meeting with Goldman Sachs Look, dressed I'm, like that? I'm very happy to give some advice to uh, <laughs> both the house DJ uh, guy in Goldman Sachs and uh, Richard Branson, whose uh, fashion sense is just terrible. I'm very happy to welcome them to welcome them to the 20th century. I mean, it 21st. was... 21st? Uh, 20th. They they're, they're arriving into the 20th. It will take them oh, yeah, a while yeah, to, to arrive yeah, into the they're, 21st. They're getting there. They're getting there. It was about time. It was about time. Uh, you know, you don't have your hostesses wearing, uh, you know, uh, short skirts and uh, lots of makeup for very peculiar reasons. Uh, and... Uh, 
but the very idea that you're relaxing your, your dress code, look, it's really too late. I mean, after American Psycho came out, anyone <laughs> would understood would have understood that wearing the power suit in Wall Street, you know, makes you look like what you are, a psychopath. <laughs> Financial psychopath. <laughs> there, is a, there is a serious psychological study that tells us that actually, uh, you know, the percentage of uh, psychopaths increases uh, fourfold in Wall Street. Oh, dear. But what, it's a very serious right, study. Well, but that's, a, that's a study for another day. Let, let's focus on fashion for the moment. But, I mean, you can kind of understand where Goldman Sachs is coming from on this. But, Joy... I get the impression, and maybe I'm just being horrifically cynical, Goldman has a new boss who in his free time is a house DJ. To me, this is an extension of a midlife crisis. Very possibly. (laughs) I mean, Lloyd Blankfein, who stepped down, um, did always wear some very expensive suits, was always incredibly well turned out, very slick, nice pair of cufflinks on his uh, wrists. This new guy, David Solomon, I haven't seen very much of him, but yes, if you, you're you're now at that generation of the kids who are out doing counterculture have now got the big jobs. Um, I know I've run into some people who uh, were the original ravers taking ecstasy in the fields who are now running kind of mm. major financial firms and they still have these weekend ecstasy parties where they can actually now afford the proper drugs and then still go into work the next day. So clearly... Actually dressed, of course. Properly dressed. But actually, I, I think even they are winding down. But the other thing is actually about business culture which is this, every major established firm at the moment is basically trying to find ways to get into startup culture because they know that they're going to look stuck in the mud and they don't if they don't. And if you are constantly presenting yourself in a smart shirt, you're looking both very professional and smart tie, you're looking very professional, but you're also beginning to look fairly inflexible about the modern world. And so I think there's a business uh, case for taking off the tie. But then, th- but then there's a weird thing, isn't there? Because before Facebook IPO'd, Mark Zuckerberg was quite comfortable in his T-shirt and jeans. He'd be standing up doing the chat in his T-shirt and jeans. And everybody said, when your company IPOs, you're going to go into the suits. Now, if you're a conspiracist, you would say the moment he started wearing his suits, that's when the trouble started. <laughs> well, that's because he almost had to do the opposite track that Goldman Sachs is doing. It had to yeah. start looking serious enough you, to be I mean, head of a billion-dollar company. We all know there is nothing more uncool than trying to be cool. Mm. Trying to appear cool almost always end up in disaster. And this is exactly what these guys are doing, which is why I'm going back to my punk roots in the 1970s and wearing a tie. (laughs) My final point, of course, is that Rolling Stone magazine famously described Goldman Sachs, quote, as a great vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity because of its voracious pursuit of money. So will this hip, cool image, the loon pants, whatever, is that going to kind of purge the past? Is it going to shake off that squid reputation because everyone's looking cool and groovy and down and dirty with the kids? Not at all. I mean, the (laughs) the very metaphor that you just invoked is one of the oldest metaphors uh, uh, in town. I mean, it comes all the way from back uh, uh, when Marx was using uh, Gothic literature to describe what was going. And then Julio Cortázar, the Argentinian writer, actually wrote that novella, the, the multinational vampires. There they are. But now they were house DJ uh, Yeah, they, were house, and they, m- they might have capes. The other, the other thing is, you know, Soho House is a no-tie culture. It may be that the Goldman Sachs bank- bankers actually just really want to get into Soho House and ah. want to slip underneath the um, dress code right. uh, bar. Conspiracy theory. OK, let's go on to something a bit more sedate, our final piece, because it seems that travellers in Austria are turning their backs on cheap no-frills airlines in favour of the train. The country's national railway company, OBB, has ordered 13 new trains with sleeper carriages just two years after spending 
40 million euros on 42 sleeper trains from Germany's Deutsche Bahn. OBB currently runs 26 overnight routes to such destinations as Rome, Zurich, Venice and Warsaw. And I know, Joy, well, you told us before we, you, before we sat down in front of the microphones that you are the queen of OBB. I am indeed. In fact, it was one of the most pleasurable train uh, journeys of my life. Well, I got on a train in Vienna in the evening with my daughter and I glided into Venice in the morning and it had always been my dream to do overnight sleepers and I did it on interrailing journey last summer. Absolutely perfect. Not actually that cheap uh, considering kind of, a, you know, what a bunk would be, but the actual experience was incredibly, um, it was just sort of thrilling. You felt mm. like a child all over again. And that's the thing, isn't it, Oscar, that, okay, it's a bit more expensive than a cheap no-frills carrier, but at the end of the day, you get the lovely scenery and you don't have people trying to sell you things along the aisles, which you do with certain carriers, which will be nameless. Let me start, <laughs> let me start by clarifying to the audience that Joy is the queen, period. And uh, she's amazing. And uh, then, secondly, well, I have uh, travelled on sleeper trains twice, uh, a couple of times to Edinburgh, which is quite nice. And then when I was a kid from Bogota to Santa Marta, and that was exactly like living with uh, a Garcia Marquez novel. It was perfect. Now, everybody knows that uh, airlines are the proverbial rent seekers. Uh, and they treat us like cattle, cattle. or even exactly. worse. So why not going for uh, sleeper trains? I'm, I'm, I'm ready for it's it. It's much nicer because I, I personally can't stand these cut price carriers because they're trying to sell you everything. Apart from the fact they're selling you foods, one of them was a nameless one, actually tried to charge you for the privilege of using the toilet facilities. But the other thing you have to do is the, the, the lack of privilege of time, which is not only commuting to the airport, but then having to go through all those search exactly. queues. Yes. At the end of it, you've lost hours. Whereas if you get on one of these sleeper trains, they're going from the city centre and literally straight into the next city centre. Yes. And so for whatever you lose in terms of like an overnight train, you gain in sleep mm. and you gain in time and you gain in a kind of rather civilised arrival in your destination. Yeah, you, you remember you're a human being. Yeah. It, it is. And there's something rather nice as well, just watching a landscape unfolding before you during this journey. As you, as you pointed out, you start in the centre of a town and then just, there's just this gradually progression, gradual progression towards green fields. Like, can I just tell you, I mean, can I just recommend the Vienna to Venice trip for the, you go through the south of the Alps and then you sort of yes. arrive down yes. at the coast. Um, you, through the you know through the Alps at dawn, heaven. Absolutely yes. Absolutely excellent. Well, I'm going to save up some money because when I grow up, I want to go on the the Orient the Express. Three of us will go on the train. Well, we'll go on the Orient Express, but we mustn't get murdered. No, <laughs> that would ruin the effect. I'm not. I'm not going to be the butler. <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of today's show. Oscar Gariola Riviera and Joy Lodico. Thank you both for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Nick Moniz. Our studio manager was David Stevens and Maylee Evans. More music next. Then at 1900 hours, it's the Entrepreneurs with. Dan Daniel Bark. More Midori House tomorrow.